All right, everyone, this is your lecture on the covenant with Abraham. Uh, and I'm excited to jump into this with you today. Just as a reminder, you will watch or listen to this lecture, and then you'll show up in person uh, to somebody's house, or you guys can meet up in a coffee shop or something, whatever works best for your group to talk through this lecture on Tuesday night. So we really would like for you to make it a priority to be there in person, because again, theology is best done in community. And so uh, that's our encouragement is for you guys to meet up in person on Tuesday night, talk about this lecture together, talk about your reading and drama of scripture. Uh, at the same time, be working on your reading for drama of scripture, your scripture memory, and your doctrinal statements. If you have questions about your doctrinal statements, you can reach out to myself if you're at Mosaic or Caroline. If you're at Eastside, we'd love to help you. Um, for today's lecture, we're looking at the covenant with Abraham. And so before we get into... Oh, before we get into maybe the, 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 the story itself, I want to just maybe backtrack a little bit and do a little bit of review. So by the time you get to the story of Abraham, some things have happened. God has created the world, Genesis 1 and 2. The fall has occurred in Genesis chapter 3, right? We've covered that over the last few weeks. But we are skipping over some things that I think are important to just kind of roll through pretty quickly so that we know where we find ourselves at when we get to the story of Abraham and how we got there. So after the fall of man, you have the story of Cain and Abel, the sons of Adam and Eve. Beyond that, you have uh, a genealogy. You have a descendant tree that leads to the story of Noah. Now, the story of Noah is interesting. Many ancient Near Eastern stories, worldviews, uh, included what we call the Diluvian story or a flood narrative. And the story of Noah is certainly a flood narrative. It's a story about cleansing the world from the evil that has begun to just become pervasive in it. And so the flood narrative is a judgment narrative, um, but it's also a salvation story because Noah and his righteous family is rescued uh, through the flood uh, by God's grace and mercy and provision. But when the flood subsides, um, we have Noah and his righteous family, and in many ways, this is supposed to be uh, kind of a, a, a replay of Eden, except that Noah does exactly what Adam and Eve do. He eats from the fruit of the tree, he gets drunk off of it, and he ends up naked and ashamed. That's what happens with Noah in Genesis 8 and 9. Then you get a, another genealogical tree in Genesis 10. Now, I wish we could spend more time on this, but there's actually a structure. You'll see this maybe just as an example at the beginning of Genesis 10 uh, in verse 1, where it says, these are the generations of the sons of Noah. So that phrase, these are the generations, is a, it's, the Hebrew word is toledot. And this toledot structure really is the kind of... Uh, uh, it's the story structure of the entire book of Genesis. This, these are the generations of, these are the generations of, these are the generations of. And so that structure is kind of uh, the, you might think about it as the skeleton of the book of Genesis that the author is using. These are the generations of as a way of telling uh, this history um, and telling it to whom? Well, the original audience of Genesis is the post-Exodus Israel, which we'll get to here in a couple of lectures. So in Genesis 11, though, we find ourselves at the Tower of Babel. So when we arrive at the story of Abraham, which begins in Genesis 12, we are at the foot of Babel. And this is a tower abandoned. It's a people scattered. When God created the world, it was formless and void. Uh, that's what we hear. Uh, tohu vavohu, formless and void. And now the people uh, at the, after Babel are tohu vavohu. They are formless and void. They're scattered. They're confused. And from these scattered people, God calls Abram out of Ur. 
and Abraham's call uh, is the clear voice of God. And it's in stark contrast with the confused voice of Babel. It's very interesting here. So you get this confused voice where the people can no longer understand one another. And then you get this clear call to Abraham in Genesis 12. And so the story of God's covenant with Abraham is bookended by two calls to go. Um, you have the call to go in Genesis 12, 1. So now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. That's the first call to go. Okay. But then if you flash forward all the way to Genesis 22, 2, you're going to get a second call to go, right? After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So the story of Abraham is really bookended by two very clear calls to go. Go from Ur to the land that I'm going to give you, and then go to the Mount of Moriah and offer up Isaac as sacrifice. And these two calls to go, they really frame the dramatic action of everything that happens in between. And in between, there's a lot. Abraham wanders through the land that God would eventually give his descendants. Uh, and so when we think about the story of Abraham, I want us to be thinking about the call of Abraham and the covenant with Abraham. And then we'll, we'll answer the question, what is our participation in this, right? Um, so here's your main point. This is the main point for the lecture. If you were going to write down the big idea, this is it. The Christians past present and future is woven into God's covenant, which is inaugurated in Abraham. The Christian's past, present, and future is woven into God's covenant, which is inaugurated in Abraham. So in many ways, my goal tonight is to convince you that Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Okay, that's what we're trying to do here. We're trying to see how the Christian's past, present, and future is actually woven in to the covenant that God cuts with Abraham. So to begin here, we're going to look at the call of Abraham. That's where we're going to start. So we'll go to Genesis 12, 1 through 9. And at this point in the Forge program, it's about to be like a lot a lot more important for you to follow along with us as we dive into the story. We've kind of been taking snapshots, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3. Now it's going to feel like, okay, we're picking up the pace a little bit as we actually follow the thread of the narrative. So I know it's been probably easy for you to just listen to us. This is now a time for you to start opening up your Bible, following along with us. Now that we've done some place setting, we're now going to start getting to kind of the main course. All right, Genesis 12. So listen to this. I'll read all of verses 1 through 9. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the Oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. 
Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Okay. So in Genesis 12, 1 through 9, we get the first call to go. And this call, go, is a call that is very radical to us now, or radical to Abram. It may not feel radical to us. We are a culture of goers. We are highly mobile as people in a highly mobile society. That was not the case in Abram's day. The idea of going from your land and your family was as good as being like, basically saying like, I'm going to die. Without your stability in a place and with a people, you were in grave danger in the ancient world. So the call to go that's given to Abram in Genesis 12 is a radical call. It's not like just hop in the car and let's just roll out and we'll come back here if we need to. It's like, no, we are closing a chapter and we are entering into a ton of unknown and uncertainty. Um, now, this call is accompanied with some promises. Okay, look at it real quick. There's uh, five things in these promises that are important for us to see. The first is that Abram is called out of Ur. He's called out of Ur. He's living in Ur, but he's called out of Ur in order to go. That's the first part of the call that you need to see. Um, so the call of Abram in many ways is paradigmatic for all of God's people. God's people are simultaneously a people who are called out and brought in. But what God is telling Abram is you're not going to dwell where you have been. You're not going to live where you started. So there is a sense here in which even in Abram's call, we're seeing the beginning of what will be the paradigm for all of God's activity towards his people, which is it begins with us being called out of where we have been. That is true with Abram. The first part of it, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. Next part, go to the land. So he's not just called out of Ur. The second thing that you need to see in the call of Abraham or Abram is he's called to the land. Abram isn't just removed, he's replanted. Um, God is telling Abram, you're going to make your home in a land that I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you a land and you're going to make your home there, right? So God isn't telling Abram, you're going to live a placeless life, even though Abram will wonder and the people of Israel will wonder for a long time before they fully have the land that God has promised Abram. But God is saying, I'm going to give you a place to live as my people with me. So he's called out of Ur. He's called to the land. Look at the next part, verse two. And I will make of you a great nation. Okay, so now what do we have? Well, we have uh, a promise that uh, there is going to be a new people that's going to emerge from Abram's line. Uh, with this new place that God is going to give them, there's going to be a new people that's established. In many ways, God is setting up Abram to be the new covenant head of an entirely new group of people. This is important to remember. It, sometimes it's easy for us to just assume that Israel was an existing people that God adopted into like his family or really like said that you'll be my people, Israel. They weren't. God made Israel. Israel is a, uh, is a machination. It's a creation of God. There wasn't like a nation Israel and God said, okay, you'll be my people. He literally took a family 
Abram and Sarai and said, I'm going to make Israel through you. That's what happened. So he says, I'm going to make you a great nation. That's the third or the fourth, excuse me, the third part of the, uh, the call that you need to see. Or the fourth is uh, right after that in verse two, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So now there's the promise that they're going to be a great nation, but they're going to be great in order to bless the other nations. So this purpose that God is giving to Abraham is your nation is going to be great. So you'll be a blessing. You'll be a blessing to the world. You'll be a blessing to the cosmos. I'm going to bless you so that I can bless the world through you. Um, and then lastly, look at it in verse three. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you of a curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram and his descendants are blessed to be a blessing to the world. This purpose that God gives them is protected by God's assurance that for the people who truly belong to Abraham, those people who are really God's people are going to be protected from cursing, and they're going to be blessed with blessings. This is really interesting. Um, the blessings that you find in Genesis 12 in the, uh, the call uh, are, according to one theologian, Gordon Wenham, he says, uh, the blessings that are promised to Abraham in his call in Genesis 12 are God's solution to the problems painted so graphically in Genesis 3 through 11. Listen to that again. The, the, the blessings that God promises Abraham in Genesis 12 are God's solution to the problems that are painted so graphically in Genesis 3 through 11. How is God going to rescue the world from sin? He's going to create for himself a people. He is going to bless the world through this people, and he is going to keep and protect that people, and he's going to give them a place to live with his presence forever. That's exactly what God tells Abraham in Genesis 12. And really, starting in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, you are now at the beginning of a kind of a new subline in the story of redemption. Sometimes theologians will call this the covenant of grace. But what happens here um, is that God says to Abraham, I'm going to make a people from you, and I'm going to bless this people. I'm going to use this people to bless the world. Now, let me give you just two examples of how what God is doing in Genesis 12 is the solution to the problems of Genesis 3 through 11. The first is that the curses in Genesis 3, or the consequences in Genesis 3, are going to be reversed, at least at the beginning, provisionally, and in a very small way. They're going to begin to be reversed in what is happening with Abraham. You think about the curse on the serpent in Genesis 3.15. Think about the curse on childbearing, the curse of the ground and the land. Well, in the midst of God telling Adam and Eve, well, listen, the, the land is going to be hard. It's going to work against you. What does God tell Abraham? I'm going to give you a place where you can live with me forever, and I'll make your nation great. In the midst of the, the consequences of childbearing, what's he say? I'm going to make of you a great nation. You're going to have many children. So you have the promise of offspring and the promise of land. But I think Genesis 11 and Genesis 12 are actually closer in terms of problem and solution. Like, think about what they wanted at Babel. Think about what they wanted. Uh, if you go and read the story of the Tower, Tower of Babel, you will hear them say, let us make a name for ourselves. Let us make a name for ourselves. See, Babel is the wrongful seizure of dominion, dwelling, and dynasty. And what does God tell Abraham? He says, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great. So what's fascinating, and you read this, if you're reading a drama of scripture, you hear this 
this is a great quote to capture this. Michael Goheen, the trophies that the people of Babel attempted to take for themselves, fame, security, and a heritage for the future are God's free gift to Abraham. So what the people of Babel try to seize by grit, God gives to Abraham through gift. You know what I'm saying? What the people of Babel try to seize a great name. They try to seize that through grit. We're going to do something incredible. We're going to be independent. We're going to be autonomous. Then you know what? Uh, God gives all of those things to a random family in Ur of the Chaldeans, and he gives them it through gift. So what Babel tried to get through might and power and independence, God gives to Abraham through his call and the promises that attend to it, which that's a beautiful picture of the gospel right there, that we cannot do this on our own. We cannot um, strive to make our name great, but God can do it and he will do it because not because we're great, but because he's gracious. Um, another thing about Babel that's really fascinating. Have you ever wondered why are they building the tower? No, like you read it and you go, well, it says that they want to build the tower. Why? So that, uh, what's it say? Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. But a tower, a tower that reaches to the heavens. Can you think of a reason why? Why not just build something else? Why not build a big statue? Why a tower? Just, just think about it for a moment. Why a tower that reaches to the heavens? Could you think of a time? where people and, uh, w would have really, in their minds, benefited from a large structure that stood far above the surface of the earth? Yeah. <laughs> they build the tower because of the judgment of the flood. The tower, the tower is not a structure that they just want to have up there, so what? So that other people can see it? So that people recognize them? No. They build the tower because they want protection on their own terms. They want independence from God. They don't want to trust God. They want autonomy. Building the tower is the same thing as eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is what? We do not want to trust God with our lives. So we'll build a giant tower that goes up to the heavens. Why? So that if another flood comes in judgment, we can climb that tower and we can be protected from the judgment of God. So, what, what they try to seize is independence. But with Abraham, what happens? He listens to the call of God and he goes, right? So they, uh, they try to eliminate trust in God. Abraham embraces trust in God. And it's counted to him as righteousness is what the writer of Genesis will go on to say. So what do Abraham's call and the promises of God have to do with us? So let's just just take these few verses here, these promises. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you a land. I'm calling you out of Ur. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to protect you. All of these promises, what do they have to do with us? Well, a few things. When we read these promises, I think it's important for us to see our past, present, and future is wrapped up in the story of Abraham. The first part, your past. The call of Abraham, the story of Abraham, is a reminder to you and I that your past goes further back than you think it does. You may be 25 years old, you may be 42 years old, but your story started in the garden with Adam, and your redemption began with the faint promises in Genesis 3, but really began to get clear in the call of Abraham. 
The promises of, of God on display in Abraham's call and that are sealed in God's covenant with Abraham are the answer to the problem of your past, namely original sin and the effects of that sin and the way that that sin prevents us from dwelling with God, from living our lives in his presence. So our past goes further back than we think. We're going all the way back to Adam. He was our head. He was our covenant head. He was our federal head. We are born in him. Abraham is the beginning of an establishment of a new representative before God. And in a temporary way, it's Abraham. But in a permanent way, it's Christ, who would be the perfect fulfillment of the seed of Abraham's promise and the promises given to Abraham. So your past, your present. Your present is really not unlike that of Abraham. Uh, you are a believer who is called out of a far country. You're called out of what you were born into to dwell with God, to live in his presence in a land that he is going to give you. God has called you to wander the world as a stranger and a sojourner, a world that belongs to him by right and belongs to his people by adoption. So you're like Abraham in the midst of you're in between the call out of the place where you were born and you are waiting for the full fulfillment of what God has promised you and promised all of Abraham's true descendants in Jesus, which is that he is coming again to take his people and to put us in a place with his presence forever. So we're stuck in between. We're caught in the tension between the already and the not yet. That's where Abraham was. He never saw the full fulfillment. And we may not either, not until the new heavens and the new earth. All right. So our past, our present, our future. See, our future is like Abraham's future. It's received by faith. Uh, you see more clearly than Abraham did, but you don't yet see fully all that we will one day know. Um, Abraham had a chosen seed, and we come to fully realize that the promises God had given to Abraham are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Like Abraham, you live in the tension between looking back at the faithfulness of God on display and looking forward to the day when the world is brought into complete alignment with God's kingdom and God's purposes in the world. So the past, present, and future of the Christian is woven into the call of Abraham. The promises that are given to Abraham in his call are the promises that are the solution to the problems of Genesis 3 through 11, and they mirror promises that God has given his people today. He has given us his presence, and one day we will know it fully. He has invited us to live in his world as the place of his presence, and one day that will be the case fully. He has given us a purpose, which is to bless those around us and that the nations will be blessed through God's people, and he has promised us he'll protect and keep his people all the way to the end. So takeaway from this part of the lecture is this. The call of Abraham is a paradigm for our story called out of a pagan past and brought into a faithful presence with God as we wait for the coming of the kingdom. So takeaway, we are called out like Abraham was, and we are called in to what God has for us in Jesus Christ. Abraham's call is a paradigm of our call. So right now uh, would be a good time if you were going to take a break or if you were going to pause this or go get some more coffee or do whatever you needed to do, this would be a good time to do that. I'm about to step into the second portion of the lecture where we'll talk about the covenant with Abraham, which really seals all of the promises that we just heard in the call of Abraham. So we'll talk about covenant in just a moment. This would be a good time to take a break. Uh, but if not, then we're about to move right in to the second block of the lecture covering the covenant of Abraham. And we'll begin by looking at Genesis 15. 
All right, we're going to talk about the covenant. Now, before we get into Genesis 15, I want to just give you some definitions of covenant, and then we'll look at the ceremony in Genesis 15. So when we start talking about a covenant, we are talking about, in my view, one of the most important theological categories that we have for understanding the flow of the story of the Bible, okay? Now, covenant is, in my view, absolutely crucial. It would be up there with um, something like kingdom. Uh, it would be up there with something like presence. And if you really had me like boil it down to the three words I think are most crucial for understanding the flow of the story of, Bible, of the Bible, I would, it's almost, I'm almost positive. I would say that kingdom, covenant, and either grace or presence for that third one would be the three words that I would use. So when I think about the story of the Bible, I think it is inextricably connected to the concept and reality of covenants. So let's talk a little bit about a covenant. Now I'm gonna give you two definitions. I'm gonna give you a broad definition and I'm going to give you a narrow definition. Um, don't try to write all these down. They are word for word in the slides that are attached to the um, email that accompanied the lecture. So a broad perspective on covenant. Covenant is the means by which God elects to be God in relationship with us. This is the idea that God reveals himself through covenant. That's a broad perspective on covenant, meaning that covenant is a revelatory device of God. Covenant is how God relates or reveals himself to the world. That's a broad definition of covenant. Covenant is the means by which God elects to be or chooses to be God in relationship with us. Uh, and uh, if I was just boiling that down to three words, God reveals himself. So covenant is the primary means by which God reveals himself. That's broad. You could call this the revelatory perspective on covenant or the revelation perspective on covenant. It's true. It's not typically what we mean when we use the word covenant. So let's get to the narrow definition of covenant. I'm going to give you uh, two definite, well, two, I'm going to give you a quote from John Murray, which captures this definition. And then I'm going to give you that same quote in my language that may be more helpful. So for a narrow perspective on covenant, John Murray calls a covenant, a sovereign administration of grace and promise a sovereign administration of grace and promise. That's from John Murray. Okay, so let me give that to you in maybe words that might feel more familiar. A covenant is the way God has chosen to secure the salvation of his people. So in this more narrow definition of covenant, if the broad definition is God reveals himself through covenant, the narrow definition is God saves his people through covenant. It's the means by which God has chosen to save his people. When we're talking about covenant in the Bible, we're most of the time talking about that more narrow definition. Um, but both are true, two sides of the same coin. Covenant is the primary means by which God has chosen to reveal himself to his people, and it is the primary mechanism through which God has chosen to secure the salvation of his people. Um, when we think about a covenant, 
uh, we're thinking about something that is forged, not just between God and man, but between man and one another or humanity itself. So covenants aren't just restricted to the divine and the human. We see covenants cut throughout the Bible and throughout the ancient world with hu between humans, human to human covenants or people groups to people group covenants. But when we're th talking in the language of the Bible, we're mostly talking about the covenants that God makes with his people. And to look at one of those, we should go to Genesis 15, because in the covenant that God makes in Genesis 15, we see an unfolding of God's plan of redemption. It's inaugurated in Abraham, it's fulfilled in the promised seed, and it's sealed by God. Those are the three big things I need you to see about Genesis 15. The covenant in Abraham is inaugurated in Abraham, it's fulfilled in the promised seed, and it is sealed by God. So let me read Genesis 15, the covenant ceremony that we find here. Um, this is going to be long. I'm going to read almost the entire, actually, I'm going to read all of Genesis 15. So follow along with me with your Bibles. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield and your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Okay, now that was a lot. Let's start to break this down. Now, when you read this, it is very, very hard to grasp all that's happening here because we don't live in a sacrifice culture, typically, any longer, like in terms of animal sacrifices. Um, I want to work this out, but I, I want to go back to those three categories and I want to just give you these three categories, and then we're going to go kind of bit by bit through this covenant ceremony. And I think by the end, you're going to say, oh, my goodness, 
that is a clear picture and story of the gospel. That's, that's what we're headed towards. You ready? Here we go. So when we think about this covenant, um, this plan of redemption, I, I want you to understand that it's inaugurated in Abraham. See, the covenant in Abraham is the second explicit mention of a covenant in Genesis, but it's really an unfolding of God's original purpose in creation. So the, the first explicit mention is the covenant with Noah. See, God had purposed that Adam and Eve, his people, would live in his presence to reflect his purposes in his place forever. That covenant is what we would, with Adam and Eve, was called a covenant of works. It was broken by Adam and Eve. They were, they were, they were going to be free to live in that garden and to extend the presence of God over the whole of the world as long as they were obedient to God. When they broke that covenant, there were consequences. They took those consequences upon themselves in exile and judgment. Then we see a partial fulfillment of this again in Noah. Noah is an unfolding of what will covenant participation look like after the fall. So God has cleansed the world. He's purified the world. He has set apart for himself a righteous family. And yet Noah fails again. The impact of sin on Noah's life leads him to sin against God. And he ends up drunk, naked, and ashamed. So when we think about what's happening in Abraham, we are getting the inauguration of an explicit covenant of grace. Now, I want to be honest with you. Um, not everybody takes the view that I'm giving you here, okay? Um, but I do think it is uh, very accurate. I think it's faithful to the witness of Scripture. But I do want to know that right now what you're hearing from me is there are sometimes where we're teaching and we're like, here are guardrails and we're not giving you these are specific positions this is a specific position that you're hearing from me and you don't have to hold this position but i do think you you have to grapple with what is happening here in my view and in the view of many reformed theologians and bible scholars what's happening in genesis 12 through 15 is an establishment an explicit establishment of what we can call the covenant of grace the covenant of grace abraham is being Israel is being created through Abraham to, to begin a new covenant people, uh, which will find their proper fulfillment in Jesus, which is the second part here. If this covenant is inaugurated in Abraham, it's not fulfilled in him. The fulfillment comes much, much, much later. It's fulfilled in the promised seed. What promised seed are, you, are we talking about? The one of Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. The The uh, interesting thing is that in Genesis 22, but all throughout the story of Abraham, you're getting the promise of offspring. And when Paul rereads Genesis 22 and the story of Abraham in Galatians, he interprets that promised seed not as the plurality of people, but a very specific person who will come through the line of Abraham, crush the head of the serpent, and will reestablish God's kingdom for God's people. And that promised seed is Christ Jesus. So, while this covenant is inaugurated in Abraham, it's not fulfilled by Abraham. It's fulfilled by one of Abraham's line, who is the fulfillment of the promised seed. And this is the Son of God, the Savior, Jesus Christ. So this covenant that you see, it's inaugurated in Abraham. It's fulfilled in the promised seed. And the covenant is sealed by God. Now, here's where I want us to start looking at Genesis 15. Because... You have to understand a little bit about how ancient Near Eastern covenants worked in order to understand why what's happening in Genesis 15 would have really surprised the Israelites when they heard about it. 
So ancient Near Eastern custom of covenants. So when you read Genesis 15, you see that God is inviting Abraham to make a covenant with him, right? And so he says, bring me a heifer. I'm looking at verse nine here. Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these. He cut them in half, and he laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. We're to understand that the birds are killed, but they're like, the birds are not cut in half. They're just laid on either side of almost like a lane of sacrifice. So think about it like, um, like two lanes are being established. Okay. And on one side is half of these animals and the other side is the other half. So you have like these lane, this lane that's been established almost like a bowling lane, but on either side of it aren't bumpers, but severed sacrifices laid against one another. Okay. So there's this covenant lane that's being established. Now, so far the Israelites and anybody in the ancient world would be like, oh yeah, that makes sense. A covenant's being made here. So this isn't, it's surprising to us in the modern mind. It's not, nothing so far as it's happening is surprising to the ancient world. They're like, we know this. This is a covenant cutting ceremony. Literally the word used for covenant um, in the Old Testament, berith, uh, this word is literally the idea of cutting a covenant. So it, the idea of severed sacrifice is so intrinsic to the concept of making a covenant, it's wrapped up into the actual word used for covenant. So anyways, so far, none of this is surprising to the Israelite imagination. It sounds and looks exactly what they would think a covenant cutting ceremony would sound and look like. But what happens next, that's where it gets surprising. So verse 12, as the, as the sun is going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon them. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. What are what is this? These are covenant promises. God is getting even clearer with Abraham by telling him, "Hey, uh, the what's going to happen is your people are going to be slaves in Egypt, and they're going to come out with great possessions." God is telling them. God is telling Abraham, "I'm going to give your people the land, but first they're going to experience slavery to Egypt. But when they come out of Egypt, they're going to be covered in the gold of the Egyptians." That's incredible. Very, it's incredible specificity in the promise that God is giving to Abraham here. And he says, I'm going to bring judgment on that nation. As for you, you will go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. He tells them the fourth generation of the, your people are going to come back here and they're going to take the land. So he's making this covenant and the covenant is clarifying with great specificity all the promises he gave to him in Genesis 12 in the original call of Abraham. So verse 17, this is where it gets spicy for the ancient mind. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these piece, pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your offspring, I give this land. Okay, now the ancient mind is surprised by what happens. Now, why? So remember, covenant ceremony, which was typical and normal, not totally surprising, is this covenant lane, severed sacrifices on either side of this lane. Now, in the ancient world, when you were making a covenant like this, here's what would happen. The, 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 the greater power making the covenant, because covenants were typically made for some sort of transference or promise or assurance of partnership and power. 
So let me give you an example of, of how an ancient covenant might feel like. Let's say you're a poor farmer and there is a, a, a person who has greater resources, greater property, maybe more sons and grandsons for physical protection. Um, maybe they have some ancient weaponry. They have more establishment. They have a more fortified defense. They're not as weak as you are and you're in their region and robbers are coming to your farm all the time and stealing your food because you're, you're kind of powerless to stop them. So you go to this greater power, which in sometimes ancient worlds in the Mediterranean world, they call a suzerain. You don't need to remember that, but you go to the suzerain, a local regional power, and you tell him, listen, I'm being robbed all the time and um, I need help. I need protection. This suzerain might say, okay, let's make a covenant together. They would set up the covenant lane, just like you have it read here. And the suzerain, the king, the higher power in that relationship would say this. Okay, here's the deal. Um, in exchange for your loyalty to me, if I ever have to go to war, um, and in exchange for some percentage of what you yield, your crops yield, I'll give you protection. And so after that happens, do you know who walks through the covenant lane of severed sacrifices, it's not the higher power, it's the lesser power. The lesser power walks through, and here's what he's saying when he makes this covenant. He's saying this, if I am loyal to you, you will do to my enemies what we have done to these sacrifices. But if I am disloyal and disobedient to you, then you will do to me what we have done to these sacrifices. So in the ancient world, this covenant ceremony was very normal, but the lesser power goes through the severed sacrifices. In Genesis 15, is it Abraham that walks through the covenant lane? No, it's not Abraham. It's a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. Where do you find smoke and fire as representative in the Old Testament? The presence of God. In this vision, Abraham is seeing that God is going through the severed sacrifices. And in this imagery, what we find is this. God looks to Abraham and says, if you obey the covenant, all the blessings will be yours. If you fail to obey the covenant, I will take the judgment of your failure onto me. In Genesis 15, God is saying, if you obey my commands, you get what only I deserve. But if you disobey my commands, I get what only you deserve. That's an incredible picture of the great exchange of the gospel. That God is telling Abraham, I am guaranteeing the covenant. You're not guaranteeing the covenant. I'm guaranteeing the covenant. And I'm doing so at the price of death. Now we know that eventually this is exactly the price that the son of God, Jesus Christ, will pay to fulfill the covenant. Because we are disobedient and disloyal. And so is Abraham. What this is a reminder of is that God's covenant making is really predicated and founded on God's covenant faithfulness. God keeps covenant in his faithfulness and we are allowed into covenant participation, not because our faith is great, but because God's covenant faithfulness is unending. I'm a huge Bob Dylan fan. Some of you know this. If Abraham had been a Bob Dylan fan and you had asked him, Abraham, how were you brought into covenant relationship with God? He might have answered by quoting one of my favorite Bob Dylan songs ever. He might have answered by saying, I paid in blood, but not my own.
That's covenant participation for Abraham. And it's covenant participation for us. I paid in blood, but not my own. You see, God's covenant with Abraham is the rolling out of God's plan to have his people live their whole life in his presence to reflect his purposes in his place. And Genesis 15 is the sealing of this covenant, this covenant that would find its full and perfect fulfillment in Christ Jesus, who would be the perfect seed and offspring of Abraham. In Genesis 17, we see the covenant begin to play out, right? As God begins to provide a way in which Abraham is to walk before him. And this covenant participation is going to shape the way that Abraham and his people live in the world. This covenant that extends to the generations is attached to the promise of the land. And the land represents God's fully realized promise to dwell with his people. The promised land is the hope of returning to the forgotten garden from which we have been exiled from. And in Genesis 17, God tells Abraham in verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. He tells him, your people aren't just going to be a people. They're going to be a royal people. They're going to belong to me. They're going to be a kingdom of priests. And this promise is generational in its impact. The hope is that God is going to make the offspring of Abraham into a great nation that will bless the whole world. And this is exactly what he does, not through the physical ethnic people group of Israel, but through the perfect fulfillment of the promise of Israel, which is Christ the King. You see, the reality is this, it would not be the sons of Abraham that would perfectly fulfill these promises, but instead it would be the son of Abraham through the line of David, a priest after the order of Melchizedek, one who could say in John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am. You see, what we're finding in Genesis 12, 15, and 17 is the reality that while God was inaugurating a plan of redemption in Abraham in the call and covenant, he was going to fulfill that in a promised seed. And that promised seed isn't one of the sons of Abraham. It is the son of Abraham. You ever read the gospel genealogies and wonder why they're so emphatic that Jesus is the son of Abraham? They're emphatic about it because he is the one who has come to fulfill all of the covenant promises. When Christ comes in his life, death, and resurrection and ascension, he comes not to replace the covenant with Abraham, but to fulfill the covenant promises made to Abraham for all of God's people, past, present, and future. So the covenant with Abraham, this is your big takeaway from this section. The covenant with Abraham, as with all covenants in scripture, is the way in which God is establishing his kingdom through King Jesus. That covenant is absolutely crucial. Genesis 15, 12 and 15 are the bedrock for Israel's understanding of itself. And they're the bedrock for the Christian understanding of how we have come to be saved. We are saved because God made promises to Abraham for all of Abraham's descendants. And Abraham's descendants are not confined to those who are the biological descendants of Abraham. They're all those who walk in the ways of God and trust in Yahweh. Okay, so this would be a good time to pause. The last section here is the shortest one. I'm going to talk a little bit about what this all means for us, kind of application of the covenant with Abraham as we think about our own life with God in his kingdom. So if you were going to pause it, this would be a great time to do it. If not, we're going to move right in and talk about the past, present, and future of covenant participation. All right. So what does God's covenant with Abraham have to do with us? 
Well, everything. It has everything to do with us. Our past, present, and future is bound up in the covenant God inaugurated with Abraham. This is the same covenant that would be consummated or fulfilled in Christ Jesus. So like Abraham, we wander around as imperfect covenant participants in God's world that has been broken by sin. As we wander through this world, we participate in the blessings of God's presence, God's purposes, God's place in a way that Abraham could only have hoped to experience. So let's talk about these presence. Covenant participants, and that's, I'm using that right now as kind of a longer way of saying Christians, because you and I are covenant participants. In Christ Jesus, we have become participants in the promises given to Abraham. Covenant participants, as we see in Abraham, are no longer in bondage to their pagan past. See, we're called out of Ur. We're called out of our pagan past into a new present faithfulness with God. Covenant participants are called into dwelling with the true God. Our loves, our worship, our practices are realigned in covenant participation with Yahweh. Covenant participants are called out of dwelling in the midst of false gods. We are set free from the oppression and temptation of idolatry. Abraham is called out of Ur. Um, He is kept from Sodom. He's allowed by God's mysterious providence to enter hostile lands and prosper in their midst. This is what God is giving us. We can walk in a lot of confidence that God has rescued us from our pagan past, and he is going to keep us faithful in the present as we participate in his covenant. That's the first one. The second one, purposes. Covenant participants are constantly putting on display to the world that, as Psalm 24 says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Um, We are constantly demonstrating to the world that this world belongs to God. As the old hymn says, this is my father's world. This all belongs to God. Um, If you go and you map out Abraham's journey and his children after him, take a, uh, you can notice something very interesting. You, you may not see it when you first look at it, but if you look in the back of your Bible, sometimes there's a map there for Abraham's journey. And then look at the land that God is going to give the descendants of Abraham eventually after Exodus. Do you know what happens? Abraham and Israel are walking around the, the land that God would give them the whole Pentateuch. The whole story of the Pentateuch is Abraham and his people literally walking from end to end the land that God promises to give them. Abraham and his children are walking around. They're acquiring footholds in foreign lands. They're setting up altars, memorial stones, tombs in the place where God had for them to dwell. So before they actually get the whole land, God has them walk the whole land. And this was an ancient Near Eastern practice. When you were going to receive, inherit, or secure new land, part of that process was to walk it end to end, kind of to walk it from every possible direction. This is what happens over the Pentateuch before they actually take the land from the nations that reside therein. And it's a reminder to us that covenant participants, we get to live freely in God's world on the foundation of God's promises. And we get to walk in that. And when we walk on the foundation of God's promises, when we live in a way in which we truly are believing and practicing that this is God's world. It's not ours and it's not anyone else's. When that happens, there is a a reward of that obedience. Look at Abraham's journey. When Abraham fails to acknowledge God's powerful dominion, when he fails to acknowledge or trust God's promises, there are consequences. You think about the story of Abraham and Sarai 
in Egypt. You think about Hagar in Genesis 16. You think about the story of Abraham and Abimelech and Sarah in Genesis 20. When Abraham fails to acknowledge God's dominion over the whole world, there are consequences. There are negative effects. When he acknowledges God's powerful dominion, when he listens to the call in Genesis 12, when he intercedes for Sodom in Genesis 18, when he is willing to offer Isaac up for sacrifice in Genesis 22, there are blessings and rewards. What does this mean? God was never going to um, remove Abraham from the promises that he had made. Those promises were sealed by God in that covenant. But for covenant participants, there are rewards for covenant obedience, and there are consequences for covenant disobedience. And the consequences of covenant disobedience will never be removal from God's covenant love. That's unbreakable and unshakable because God has sealed it. But there will be consequences. There are negative effects when we don't obey God. There are positive effects when we do obey God. These aren't always what the world views as positive and negative effects, but there are. They are there, and we see them in Abraham's story as well. Abraham's present was shaped by the promise of God, but he didn't always live that way. Abraham didn't always live as if God's promises were the things that were fundamental to his life. And like Abraham, covenant participants like us, we live imperfectly between the tension of God's promise and its complete fulfillment. Um, Paul says of Romans, uh, of Abraham in Romans 4.20, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Now, when you hear Romans 4.20, you might be like, wait, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God? You can think of multiple times where Abraham wavered concerning the promise of God. I just listed them for you. Hagar, Pharaoh in Egypt, Abimelech. Like, there are many times where it seems Abraham wavers. So what is Paul saying? He's saying this. When you have entered into covenant relationship with God, God is so gracious with you that even when you waver, even whenever you doubt, even whenever you step into disobedience, while there might be negative consequences that are attached to that, there is not going to be removal from God's righteousness that he's provided in his covenant faithfulness. He's not going to pull you out. So even though Abraham does waver, he does distrust God, God is viewing Abraham not independently anymore, but through the lens of Christ, who is perfectly faithful, in the same way that he's viewing us through the lens of Christ, who is perfectly faithful. So place, purpose, people. Covenant participants are marked and set apart to extend the blessings of God to a broken world. How is Israel marked? Well, in Genesis 17, you hear about it. They're marked through circumcision. Israel was marked and identified through circumcision. People ask me all the time, why circumcision? It, it, it was not visible. Well, that presumes something. <laughs> it presumes that the covenant mark would not be visible. It presumes a level of uh, protection of the body that was not normative in the ancient world. Um, it's easy for us to be like, yeah, there, you know, people would not have seen um, Israel's circumcision. It comes up a lot in the Bible. Why do you think it comes up so much? Well, it's because there's not private baths in Israel. There's not private baths in the ancient world. There isn't underwear in the ancient world, certainly not the way that we think about it. Um, there is corporate life lived very close to people, both strangers and sojourners and your family and your kin. Like the, the, the symbol of circumcision comes up so much in the Old Testament because it is visible. Okay, so that sign does set Israel apart in the world. But okay, but why is that sign? Well, because it's a reminder. 
that the promised seed, which would come through, at least in the ancient world and in the partial fulfillment we find in the Old Testament, through childbearing, it was a, it was a reminder, literally a bodily reminder to men and women that it was, uh, that life is God's to give. And that ultimately their life was rooted not in their ability to create life, but in God's covenant to keep them. So it was a very intimate sign and symbol that connected with one of the explicit promises of offspring to come and overthrow um, the curse of evil and was visible to the watching world. So that's why circumcision is the mark. And we too, as covenant participants, are marked. No longer fundamentally by circumcision, Covenant participants are publicly identified that they belong to their covenant God in baptism, in the practice of the Lord's Supper every week. Those are covenant symbols that mark covenant participants. Every week we receive the Lord's Supper, we remind ourselves that we are covenant participants. How? Through the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. Every single week in a service is a covenant ceremony. It's a reminder of what happened in Genesis 15 and was perfectly fulfilled in the gospel story of Christ's death, that the broken body and shed blood of the perfect sacrifice has sealed our covenant participation with God. And lastly, we're marked um, in order to be a blessing to the nations. We are blessed to be a blessing. Not only are we marked, but we are marked so that we might be identified as the people that God has set apart to bless the nations. Abraham is a blessing in his life. Genesis 14 with Lot's rescue, his intercession for Sodom in Genesis 18, and fundamentally in the fact that he provides the offspring that provides the offspring that provides the offspring that provides the offspring and so on and so, so forth that leads us to the son of Abraham, son of David, the son of God, Jesus Christ. Abraham is a blessing in that he works as a focus to God's covenantal love to the whole world. And I love that. Um, that we as God's covenant participants, we are called to walk in faithfulness, to receive the blessings of God fundamentally in salvation, and then to extend those blessings to the world around us, namely the presence of God, the purpose of God, and an invitation to live there among God's people in God's place forever. Okay, so that was the last section. Big takeaway from that section, Father Abraham had many sons. <laughs> I'm one of them and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. That's your takeaway from that last section. I'm kidding, but not also. Our past, present, and future is woven into what God does. The story of Abraham is not just the story of some ancient Near Eastern patriarch who starts a family. That's not what's happening. It is much, much, much bigger than that. You could say, and it would be an honest way of saying it, that the gospel begins to become explicit in Genesis 12 and 15. And it is inaugurated with greater specificity or, or fulfilled with greater specificity much, much later um, in the covenant that God fulfills in Christ Jesus through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. So I hope that your discussion groups on Tuesday night are really fruitful. Take that time seriously. Um, spend time with one another. Enjoy that time, but also dig into this lecture. Ask some good questions of one another. Maybe read a portion of Genesis 12, 15. Talk about the lecture. Talk through your questions. Talk about the reading. Um, and just spend some time talking about what you've learned so far uh, in the FORGE program. We hope you enjoy that time together, uh, and we'll look forward to seeing you in person for Caroline's lecture next week. See you.